welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Morning, everybody hear me? Yeah. I'm a very grateful Good morning. The Essanon problem. Essanon members have much in common with the friends and relatives of other addicted people. Most of us grew up in families with secrets, and we were not taught to think about our own needs and take positive action to meet them. We chose friends and partners who could not or would not support us in a healthy way. We live life from the standpoint of victims and perceived any personal criticism as a threat. For most of us, anger, fear, and depression were nearly constant. We acquired some unhealthy beliefs about ourselves very early in our lives that we were not worthwhile and lovable, that we were able to control other people's behavior and that sex was the most important sign of love. We have also felt the shame of thinking we were responsible for the sexaholic behavior of a family member or friend. Our self-esteem dropped to low levels, and we doubted our attractiveness, our emotions, and our sanity. We have felt betrayed by those we love the most. Many of us were sexually abused, exposed to diseases, <laughs> and otherwise placed in physical danger. We were often too ashamed to ask for help. Some of us minimized the importance of the sexaholic behavior or denied it until we felt emotionally numb. Others focused on the sexaholic and the sexual behavior to the point of obsession and tried every known method to control it. Some of us participated in sexual behavior that made us ashamed of ourselves or used sex to manipulate sexaholic. Some of us misused drugs, alcohol, or food, and others kept so busy that we didn't have time to feel our emotions. We often neglected our health, our jobs, and our children. No matter how we try to struggle against it, deny it, or minimize its effect, the failure of our efforts to cope with sexaholism brought us to the point of despair. That is, This is what we mean when we say in the first step, our lives have become unmanageable. Good morning, I'm John, a sexaholic. The essay solution. We saw that our problem was threefold, physical, emotional, and spiritual. Healing had to come about in all three. The crucial change in attitude began when we admitted we were powerless, that our habit had us whipped. We came to meetings and withdrew from our habit. For some, this meant no sex with themselves or others, including not getting into relationships. For others, it also meant trying out, not having sex with a spouse for a time to recover from lust. We discovered that we could stop, that not feeding the hunger didn't kill us, that sex was indeed optional. There was hope for freedom and we began to feel alive. 
encouraged to continue. We turned more and more away from our isolating obsession with sex and self, turned to God and others. All this was scary. We couldn't see the path ahead, except that others had gone that way before. Each new step of surrender felt it would be off the edge into oblivion, but we took it. And instead of killing us, surrender was killing the obsession. We had stepped into the light, into a whole new way of life. The fellowship gave us monitoring and support to keep us from being overwhelmed, a safe haven where we could finally face ourselves. Instead of covering our feelings with compulsive sex, we began exposing the roots of our spiritual emptiness and hunger, and the healing began. As we faced our defects, we became willing to change. Surrendering them broke the power they had over us. We began to be more comfortable with ourselves and others for the first time without a drug. Forgiving all who had injured us and without injuring others, we had tried to right our own wrongs. At each amends, more of the dreadful load of guilt dropped from our shoulders until we could lift our heads, look the world in the eye, and stand free. We began practicing a positive sobriety, taking the actions of love to improve our relations with others. We were learning how to give, and the measure we gave was the measure we got back. We were finding that none of the substitutes had ever survived. We were making the real connection. We were home. Okay, so we are so blessed to have a uh, three speaker, three speakers of time. We're going to be adult children of uh, sexaholic or addicts, or addicts. Um, and uh, we're so lucky. The first one is going to be introduced by Tom F. Come on up, Tom F. Hey, it's Tom Rapp. I'm a three-four recovering as a holiday guest in my and I've been in recovery for three years. Um, I have been friends with Nathan M for, gosh, over a year now. We we met at the Wichita, Kansas retreat, and he's been one of those guys. I haven't seen him in person since that retreat, but we've talked almost every single week, multiple times a week, even sometimes multiple times a day. Um He's been a friend, he's been a fellow in the program, and ultimately he's been a brother. And my special memory, Nate, was, uh, or continually is, his faith, his faith in his higher power. It's been something that's touched my life, and his constant, steadfast push and trusting God in every moment, every second of his day, has encouraged me to continue to trust my higher power one day at a time. Thanks for letting me share Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. Great to be here, everyone. Good morning. Yeah, my name is Nate. I'm a grateful member of Essendon. I've been in the program since uh, December of 2021. Uh, glad to be here. First, uh, first conference here at uh, Sarasota. Um, got invited by some great friends, some great support systems. Um, I find out these are freaks just all the time. So feel blessed today. Just feel thankful to... Uh, just honored to uh, be able to speak to you tonight and share a little bit about, about my story. Um, we set a timer here so I'm going to get lost. 
Yeah, so um, that's not a problem. Uh, many of us grew up in households with secrets. Uh, that is definitely me. Uh, when I was younger, my, I believe my parents had a secret, um, and I can never figure it out. You never figure out why they were always just arguing all the time, why they were always just bickering all the time. Um, I can never figure that out. And still, to this day, I still don't know what the secret is. Uh, and that just caused, yeah, a lot of distress, I think, growing up, a lot of confusion, a lot of isolation. Um, and it just, uh, like I was able, I just picked up a lot of just bad habits uh, that have made my life uh, absolutely unmanageable uh, for many years. So, yeah, history of sexaholism, um, addiction in my family. Uh, my mom had a first husband and he was an alcoholic, um, ended up dying of cancer actually because of it. Um, and he passed away long before I was born. My dad had a first wife uh, as well. And she had an affair with a man across the street um, and they ended up getting a divorce. Um, and that was before my parents met. Um, so that's just kind of like little history. I don't know too much about it, but I just kind of figured that out just over the years. Um, but yeah, sexaholism, I could definitely see uh, present like growing up, um, especially just being around, around my dad, you know, going out in public. Um, you know, he would just uh, stare at women suggestively, um, just way too long. Uh, and, you know, he'd flirt with flirt with women like all the time, like um, just like out in public, um, stuff like that. And uh, yeah, just uh, watching a lot of movies, and uh, you know, the lust scenes would come on, and just looked at him a lot, like suggestively, just a lot. Um, never really thought much of it. I was just like, I guess this is just what a normal household is like, or I guess it's just what a man does. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I never really knew it affected me until like a little bit later on down the road. Um, but I picked up a lot of bad behaviors, I think, from my dad. Um, one of them being particular, my inability to say no. Um, I couldn't say no a lot. And I just think I picked that up a lot with him. Um, and that's where I just developed this like kind of people pleasing attitude for a lot of my life. And also just, uh, didn't have a lot of direction, um, but like I missed that just uh, kind of as a man, uh, someone to show me the way, you know, show, someone to show me the way to, to God, someone to show me the way to, uh, to my higher power. Um, so yeah, often just felt like, I think isolated with that. Um, inability to stand up for myself. I wasn't taught that inability to say no, carried these character defects with me throughout my childhood. And I had the inability to pick the correct friends. Um, I just picked the wrong crowd, hung out with the totally wrong crowd, um, middle school, high school, all that. And, uh, yeah, couldn't say no, um, couldn't say no to alcohol, couldn't say no to, uh, you know, drugs at the time, you know, couldn't say no to, you know, some certain like lots and stuff like that. And I kind of figured out like recently, like it wasn't the drink, it wasn't the weed, it wasn't the lust. <laughs> Really, my inability to say no. Uh, so that's just uh, good for me, for me to recognize. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I just fell into the wrong friend groups and um, was just uh, bullied a lot, humiliated a lot, uh, middle school, high school. Uh, just some of the hardest times in my life, um, never having a true, just like authentic friend uh, with me. Uh, it was always just constant bring me down, like, let's bring this dude down. Uh, 
which yeah, it just really hurt a lot because I uh, felt like I couldn't go to my parents for that um, because they were just constantly arguing just like all the time. Um, just caused just like a lot of isolation, uh, a lot of bad decisions made like when I was younger. So yeah, this went on, you know, just for a long time. And uh, eventually I just started, uh, my mental health was just a bad state, you know, depression. Since that problem, like depression was almost always constant. Anxiety was almost always constant. Uh, yeah, that was the end. It was my inability to choose good relationships, choose good friendship. Uh, and so it just fell into this, like, just big rut. Eventually, like, sought out, like, therapy and counseling and... Um, one of the best days of my life to this day, because I've been out with these guys you know, for 15 years of my life. You know, they're my best friends. We were saying, like, yeah, we're going to be each other's best man, like, at our wedding and uh, weddings and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, it just turned out that they were just uh, causing just a lot of low self-esteem for me. And so this counselor one day, and she looks at me, and uh, she says, you know, Nathan, I don't think that these are your friends. I was just like... What is this lady talking about? These are my best friend. I mean, come on. But she just kept saying that to me every single week. Like, these aren't your friends. Um, and I didn't listen to her for like about a year. Um, but then I just started getting like super angry just around them, like all the time. Um, just super cautious of what they thought about me or what they're going to say or what they're going to pressure me to do. Um, and one of my rock bottoms um, was, you know, we, we'd go shooting a lot. You know, we would go. Um, up to the mountains and like shoot shotguns or shoot like clay pigeons and stuff like that. And uh, I was so angry. And one time I just started having thoughts of like, hey, I should just uh, I should just kill these guys. Um, I had the chance like to do it right now, just get them out of my life. Um, and that, that was just uh, those were some dark times, dark times in my life. <laughs> just like a lot of pain there. Um, so eventually I thought about what this lady said and I said, you know, this lady's right. And that was the introduction to my solution. You know, focus on the solution. That's what, um, that's what I've hear a lot at like this conference and stuff like that. Uh, focus on the solution. The problem gets smaller and smaller. And uh, so I, I found recovery um, shortly after that. And um, I actually found, you know, I was hanging with my dad and he told me to look up something on his phone. I found like pornography on his phone. Um, I just completely like dropped the phone. I was like, whoa. Um, and that was about a couple months before I went to my first essay, SNON conference ever, uh, which was in Wichita. Mm -hmm. And uh, met a great friend uh, to this day, some great, great friends of mine, like almost like second parents to me. Um, and I approached him. I said, hey, uh, you know, does this affect me? I found pornography like on my dad's phone and really just started questioning that just like a lot. Um, Told me to call him like right away. Called him and I got introduced to SNI. Like the miracle just uh, just started happening. Some of the miracles in recovery is like God is now my higher power. See, I put all my faith into people. I put all my faith into um, the the joy and connection with them, and like my self esteem depended on my relationship with others. And now today, it's starting to shift. My self esteem depended on God. Um, yeah, God is my higher power. He's the source of where I get everything from. Um, you know, he's the vine of the branch. Uh, another thing, miracle recovery affirmations. Sometimes I got to say a thousand times a day that I'm good enough. 
you know, that I'm good enough and God loves me just the way I'm at. Uh, loving people where they're at, you know, it took a long time to like forgive my parents for the unmanageability growing up, but I've learned to just love them where they're at and see that like, you know, they did the best they could with what they had. Uh, they, you know, they saved their marriage. Um, didn't necessarily think that they totally 100% love each other, but they ended up, you know, saving their marriage. And like, I'm thankful for that. You know, it would have been a lot worse. I remember when I was like younger, like just saying, like, you guys always fight all the time. Why don't you just go get a divorce? Um, just not knowing what that really meant. But now I'm just like thankful today that, uh, you know, they, they did the best they could. So loving people where they're at, just another one of those miracles in recovery. Uh, my self worth. Is uh, defined in my my higher power. Uh, I've tried sober dating, uh, you know. Recently, that's uh, that's a challenge. It's literally like being thrown into like uh, deep water and not having any expectations, not having any assuming, not obsessing. Like, oh man, it's it's tough. It's tough. But uh, you know, that's kind of been my journey. It's like just being thrown in deep water and uh, learning how to swim. Um, and that's what SNR feels like sometimes, but uh, learning a lot, just like every day. Uh, another thing I've learned is uh, I'm not God. I'm not the hero of anyone's life. I can't control them. I can't change them. And I can't cure them. Um, you know, I'm not even a superhero of my own life as much as I like to be. Um, yeah, I'm just uh, not God. I can't play God. And uh, there's only one person who can change. There's only one thing that could change someone. That's my higher power. So I've learned that. I've started doing this like 90, 90 days or 90 meetings in 90 days. Um, you know, there's still some self-denial. Like, do I really need this? Um, you know, like a lot of a lot of others like in recovery of like Essendon, um, you know, maybe they had a spouse that was a sexaholic. Um, that's just not my story. You know, my story is just quite a bit different. Um, it's sometimes a question like, do I really belong here? But I do. I do at the end of the day because I'm looking for emotional sobriety. I'm looking to be good with myself. Um, I'm looking to know that God has control of my life. Uh, another blessing, just um, awareness of thought patterns going on in my brain. I was never aware of all this stuff going on in my brain until like just, just recently when I'm, I could catch my brain going like, oh, I'm assuming what that person is saying. I'm obsessing about what they think of me. Um, I'm predicting the future. I'm putting words in their mouth. You know, I'm working other people's programs. I'm giving my opinion too much. Um, and yeah, it all just like comes at me constantly. But luckily, I got a higher power. Who cares? Um, and I got so much faith in him that um, he knows what's best for my life. Um, and still to this day, I have an inability to take care of myself. I have to ask God to take care of me for me. Um, and that's okay. It's okay. Um, yeah, these conferences just, uh, they bring, I think, the life in me. Um, and I'm able to be a little bit more myself and, uh, you know, connect with God more. And that's, that's another thing that the program has taught me is just getting outside of me, getting outside of me and more into others. Um, you know, because I've learned like how well I love others is how well I'm going to love a higher power. Um, that's just a big, 
they figured out one establishing the uh, you know the big connection with others. So um, yeah, just what a what a grace what a grace to be here. Uh, even though I had all these these rock bottoms in my life, and uh, yeah, truly like I'm not going to quit before the miracle happens. That's for sure, but I keep coming back and. Uh, yeah, just uh, just give God a day every day. So, anyway, my name is Nathan. That's all I got. Hope everyone enjoys the conversation. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for making my first reaction was like, oh, I can't do this. I'm going on. I've got two responses now. I can't say yes. And then he just keeps saying, say yes. So I'm so thankful. I said, yes. Her name is Natalia. She's from Poland. And we were discussing Florida when she said, I love Florida. And so she's here, but it's a great decision. Like I said, I've known her since December. And the funny thing is, um, is how we met. The wonderful thing that I believe that this program has is this real connection, right? And so people share numbers with permission. And through WhatsApp, one day I got this message. And it was Natalia. And it was a person that I actually never talked to. Um, and she she really doesn't even know this person either. But the amazing thing, and I thought about this the other day, and I thought the person's name is Grace. Okay. Say no more. Okay. Welcome, Natalia. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Natalia, grateful recovery alcoholic, sober since uh, November 12th. Um, uh, let me just start with a little prayer, if I may. Uh, it's going to be a set-aside prayer. God, please help me set aside everything I think I know about myself, my disease, these steps, and especially you. For an open mind and a new experience with myself, my disease, these steps, and especially you. So, what can I say? Uh, <laughs> um, I do not identify myself as a nun, but I, I now can say that I come from a family with uh, dysfunctions. I would never say it just two months ago. It's like... <laughs> It's very new for me, everything. So, um, yeah. But 
Anyway, um, one thing that I think about every time I just recall America is Thanksgiving. You know, it's a very famous uh, holiday in your country, and it's like very. So I, I just wanted also to start with thanks, um, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be here, and thank to God, and thank to uh, NJ and Kevin for organizing and inviting me. And uh, I'm also very grateful and thankful for my family, even though it might be uh, a little hard to admit, but uh, I also would like to start this whole thing just talking about myself. Uh, Right. So I was born in 1996 in Poland, and I was I was the first generation actually to experience a free country. And I don't know if you know, but Poland was uh, a communist country under under dependent on Soviet Union. Uh, so, like, imagine the whole country being dependent, like whole every per person. Uh, it was not good for the whole society, and it's just uh, it just reflected in my family as well. Um, the government just wanted people to get 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 people busy, so they really wanted people to stay at work late hours, not even working really hard, you know, but just being at work. And uh, also, imagine shops lacking toilet, like very basic products like toilet paper and sausage or or bread, but never lacking alcohol. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> alcohol was everywhere. And um yeah, funny not funny because uh, like my mother's dad, so my grandfather, uh he was definitely addicted. He was an AA. And I didn't know it. I mean this is all new. I just kind of discovering it um because when I was born, he was already sober for a couple of years. Uh, but it did, it did definitely affect my mom's childhood and uh, and her life. Uh, so, um, yeah, but just scrolling to the, the moment when I was born, uh, I, I also had some healthy issues. And uh, my mom, because of that, had to quit her job. And uh, also move out for a little bit. I, I had a severe allergy for pollen. So every time there was spring in my city, I had to move out to like a northern part where there is like, a seaside and just literally be on the beach with my mom, just only me and her, you know, for one quarter of a year. And so that was hard to my whole family just because my dad was the only breadwinner in a in in the place and he was still living in our city but then i was apart and he would be just visiting for maybe one or two weekends so not very uh, there for me uh, at the beginning and uh yeah so he was just like alone and apart so what could he do he was just focusing on making money you know making living and working and and uh and what happened next also uh, was he was running a business with his like his mother and and, and uh, his brother, so my uncle and grandma. And that business, just as many businesses in Poland, when it started to convert economically, just collapsed. And that would be normal, but then they had like a 
huge debt in that. And then um, basically um, the rest, like my grandma and my uncle just ran away from it. But then um, my dad just stayed with, stayed there with like a hundred thousand Polish law to death. And which could be an equivalent of like two times the value of an apartment that we were uh, having a mortgage on. So, and I didn't know it until like really recently, but what I saw as a child was that my parents were very nervous. They were always fighting about something. There was a lot of confusion going on because they didn't want to really like explain it to five-year-old girl and my little brother. And uh, so there was like a constant fear in the air. I remember my mom, you know, not picking uh, up a phone and just trying to not uh, open the door for a male person because of the bank or like some correspondences and just like some serious people in suits coming to our house and I don't know what was going on but it was it, it really felt insecure and uh, and just just a lot of tension and uh, yeah I, I and, and my dad was basically always out just making money or doing something uh, so that was like a very very dark and hopeless point uh, in my childhood and uh, and I almost got my parents divorced. And so I also felt like I was with my mom, basically. And I was with the older sister, uh, the first child. And then I just felt such an emotional burden of being being there. Just because my dad was lacking, my mom had not, nobody to turn to. I felt like I'm just an emotional a feeler for her, kind of, and uh, and uh, and just and and she would also just complain or or, or be mad at my dad and just talking to me about that. So I just also felt like I'm in the middle of the conflict, kind of like mediating between because I didn't really wanna, I didn't really know what's going on, but I didn't want to blame my father on what's going on, and so I was just always trying to to be the best I could for my mom and to just please her and to just be kind of like a, somebody who could bring a little bit of peace or happiness, but it didn't really work out that way. And uh, and then I also, when I was a teenager, I, I, just, I just felt so overwhelmed with that already. And I just turned into rebellion. <laughs> So I was trying to run away from home, um, looking for social approval through just basically partying and, and just providing the substances not to remember or, or, or be in that constant just, just burden or something um, and pain. So I would use like overdose, alcohol, drugs, anything. And I uh, also, now I see that I was looking for father's love and admiration in random men. And uh, yeah, um, I also tried to control them and, and just, uh, yeah, you know, just 
all the stuff that sex in Hollywood do. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, but then, uh, long story short, the pandemic, when the pandemic came, I basically reached my rock bottom and uh, I just couldn't really keep digging that hole. Um, so there was, I, I also was blessed with a friend uh, who, thanks, uh, who really just dragged me out from like a pit hole. I was, I was feeling like I'm in the, in the moment of decision if I want to jump from the building or just keep on going. And yeah, she, she gave me a lot of hope in the higher power as well. And, um, and that, that was the moment when I first had my spiritual awakening and turning to God. But it, it was, yeah, so it was like three years ago almost, but it didn't really work, like it didn't really help that much for, it doesn't, It didn't sustain me. And and I think that the problem that about that was that I, I found myself in that trouble and I wanted to turn to God, but I didn't want to accept my situation. So, um, so I would just keep on denying the problem and, and just, just trying to stay, let's say sober and, and stay away from trouble by my own power. Uh, and just, just because I thought it's wrong and I shouldn't do wrong. But, um, yeah, but I don't know, just God's grace led me to, to the fellowship through another friend who she kind of got a little bit of my story and then she said, like, Natalia, that's sick. You should treat it. <laughs> and, uh, and that was just a part, a little part, which is kind of like somehow she got to know and I was, I was, I, I didn't get offended because I trusted her and I thought, like, you're right. I cannot do it by myself. I need to find help. And uh, that's how I ended up uh, being in finding SA group in Warsaw, going to my first meeting. And and even though it was a lot of shame and that, and it was something very weird at the beginning, I would say, <laughs> but I just, I just feel so much support. And I just, it's, it's just amazing how open people are here. And it also brought me the hope back for the whole world because when I was the world I was living in was so cruel. Everybody just wants to sell you something, either use you somehow or just make benefits out of you. And you just you just have to struggle and somehow deal with it and make a living and be by yourself and and just fight for yourself and. And here in the fellowship, I just discovered people who unconditionally would help you, who you can ever like just reach out for help and they will share your knowledge for free, not for anything else in, in, in exchange. And uh, I mean, it's just so much love and, and, and acceptance and everybody's just equal and we don't have any, any leaders or or anything like that so it's just 
a brand new world. I just love it. I just, you know, I cannot imagine now not being to experience that. We're so blessed, really. Um, so yeah, then, I mean, since I started this journey, it's just, it's a crazy ride, you know, like a roller coaster <laughs> uh, led by higher power and miracles happen here and there. But the thing is, it just, it's not how I would imagine it. And I think it's also about expectations that maybe I had in my, in my life. It's, it's something that I would never imagine like that. And I maybe had different expectations, but I would never expect to be in Florida with you guys. <laughs> That's just a miracle. It's, it's really a miracle. I believe that. And, you know, you can say, oh, yeah, but I just had to make so much effort. Like, I bought the tickets, I planned it, and I came. So I must also say, yeah, I'm so super. Yeah, I came here. I did. And, but I, I just don't want to do that anymore. That's what I used to do all the time and just take the whole, either take everything for granted or take it as my own uh, efforts. But now I just really, I, I want to believe that it's higher power and I just want to surrender. And what else? <laughs> That's all, I guess. <laughs> I hope that was a nice talk and it's helpful. And if you want to talk more, because I can talk for hours and hours. <laughs> yeah, you know where to find me. Thank you so much for letting me talk. And it's on that three board company. Let's say just got pulled in. Introduce Marcus B. <laughs> so, uh, um, little background. So, yeah, uh, gosh, I met Marcus at this conference last year. So, this is really profound. He was the reason that I realized I was an SNL. He gave this incredible share, and I was like, that's my story. What my parents, my family. I'm not like, I thought that I was just the problem. I didn't realize that there was a generational illness in my family. And, um, this guy completely changed my life. Can't believe I'm saying that. So thanks, thanks for being here last year, Marcus. And I'm excited for your share today. Good morning. My name is Marcus, grateful Essendon SA. I'm very grateful to be here. Um, you know, I will preface my share with a little bit of gratitude. Um, you know, I'm grateful that a lot of my story that I am about to share, a lot of it has changed. A lot of my familial relationships that I came in with struggling, isolated from, resented from, a lot of them have changed, especially with my parents, with my son's mother. And it's all due to the program. It's all due to a higher power and the healing that I have gotten. And I, I do want to say, too, about this retreat that we're having. You know, it's, it's a family reunion. And although my chair will be about my story, a little bit about that, 
growing up in the illness. You know, I'm so grateful that I've also found a family of choice, which is my family in Essendon, the men in Essendon, my SA family, a lot of you here. Some of you I haven't even um, got to say hi to. There's so many people here, which I'm grateful for. Um, so I'll start off with a little qualification with my story here. Um, you know, I think growing up in the family, like others have shared, there was a lot of secrets and shame, and there was a lot of a lot of things that were going on in my family growing up that I wasn't aware of. When I came into recovery, it wasn't because of Essanon. It wasn't because of other people's behavior. It was because of mine. I came in through SA. And I had the gun against my back, get help or get out. And when I, my first SA sponsor, when I was doing my first step, he says, why don't you do kind of a timeline of your life? And I couldn't remember most of my childhood. And I remember seeing a therapist around that same time. And she says, well, let's go look back at your childhood and let's talk about that. And my response was our theme, which how important is it? <laughs> I didn't want to talk about my childhood. And, you know, and through that, um, I started to gain some some clarity. I started to see that my parents were very young when they had children. My mom was 15 when she had my older brother. She was 17 when I was born. My dad wasn't too much older than her. And my parents, you know, they did the best they could with what they had at that time. And one of my sponsors, he likes to remind me, he says, Marcus, everyone gives 100% of what they have. And although you were given 30, 40% of what a child needed in a childhood, the program, a higher power, goes in the rest. And that was reassuring. And through working my program in SA, through making amends, through having living amends, through having a spiritual awakening, which is for me, spiritual awakening is just being in reality. That's all it is. It's just being in reality and not faced with delusions of lust and all of that, not faced with all this resentment, all this other stuff that I was carrying with me. It's just being in reality and being in reality, like in the big book, it talks about in a vision for you. It says God will continue to disclose more and more to you and more and more started to get disclosed to me. So I want to kind of just talk about how I got into Esteban. Um, when I was in SA, uh, I was one of those members that would just go to one meeting a week, wasn't working any steps. I had the character defect that I was terminally unique because I was the youngest member. I was about 22 in my home group and everyone was twice or three times my age. So I, I didn't think I belong. And I'll just say, I'm a part of a young SA group now that we have over a hundred members under 30 years old. <laughs> and so I'm not alone. That's where I met Tom too. Um, and so I came in, I thought I was unique, um, thought I could control. I just wanted the worst of my behaviors to stop and finally hit a bottom after a year of just coming to meetings. My son's mom left me. And today I look at it as courage. She had the courage to leave me with no financial backing, taking off with our son, taking me to court. I look at that as courage because she was, I wasn't getting any better. I was getting worse. You know, this illness of sexaholism is a progressive disease. It gets worse, never better. And she saw that. And she was also participating in SNON at the time. And I was getting worse. And so she finally left. And that's when I eventually hit a bottom, started working a program. And now being a single parent, I had to be faced with the family of origin that I had that I isolated myself from. 
And I moved, I had my own little mini geographic. I moved about 30 minutes away from my family. And I was a single father that had to start asking for help. And I started to ask for help from my family. I was faced with a lot of my brother's active alcoholism. Um, and that's that's the disease, you know, this disease of sexaholism, alcoholism, it isolates the family. There's a lot of untreated um, behaviors, you know, lust and alcohol are just the symptoms of the problem. There's many other attitudes and behaviors that accompany the disease. And I didn't realize I was um, I was raised in those environments. So now being faced with active alcoholism, a member of my home group brought me into Al-Anon and I got a sponsor there eventually a few years ago and started working the steps and my relationship started to get better. I started to see the disease, the alcoholism as a disease, started to learn tools about boundaries, how to communicate, how to feel my feelings, detachment with love, a lot of things that people have shared here yesterday as well. And then I remember going to a Zoom conference in Georgia and um, I remember there was an essay panel of single members dating and sobriety. And I remember almost every single member that shared that was single and sober and dating, almost 100% of them would share about finding a sexaholic, whether, the, whether they were in recovery or not. They were finding their counterpart. You know, Roy K says in the white book, first we're addicts, then we're love cripples. And when I'm sober, you know, and the disease is arrested. I'm still a love cripple. And, and I just, I saw as a single father, I didn't want to get myself in that situation. And I went back through my sex inventories and I saw that a lot of my first relationships were those of being with sexaholics. I was the one that was giving ultimatums, looking through phones, snooping on social media. I was so insecure about, I, I put up with unacceptable behavior because I was afraid of being alone. A lot of us in Essendon share that. I found people that could not or would not support and love me in a healthy way. Because it's what I knew. It was what was familiar. You know, growing up in the family, when my parents split up due to infidelity when I was about 11 years old, I was affected by this disease. And it wasn't because of my parents. It was when, when I was about five years old, my, my dad, um, when he was just, te- they were just teenagers. My dad was facing his third felony, got off and turned his life around in his faith tradition. And he started to, do his own 12 steps, started to carry the message to people and from his old life and bring them into our house. And our house was like a boarding home. And, you know, we had a family living with us and there was a girl about my age, about five years old, and we would do things in secret, we would kiss and touch and all these things in the closet. And we knew nothing about sex. We're five years old. And just a few years ago, I, I found out that her father was arrested for child molestation and kidnapping. And I have to assume that he was exhibiting those behaviors onto her and she was practicing those behaviors with me. So I'm afflicted with the illness of sexaholism. I do carry the allergy to lust. I am a member of SA. I do have the obsession of, I have all the characteristics of an SA, but I'm also, you know, Ed W in Kentucky, you know, he likes to tell me, he says, Marcus, there are those of us that are afflicted with the disease, but all of us are affected by the disease. In that moment when I was five, that was when I was affected by the disease of sexaholism. And as I grew up, my parents split up due to infidelity. I saw my mom cycle through boyfriends that kind of reverted back to their teenage years. My dad would show up drunk, violent rage with my mom. Um, I just remember being a young kid frozen in fear. And I remember my mom would cycle through boyfriends. And there's a couple of messages I learned from all of that. You know, one of the messages I learned was that 
Well, my mom would always say two things. She said, he has a nice job and a nice car. And I became the guy with a nice job and a nice car. <laughs> and I learned two things. One, men were expendable. But didn't have, and, and the second one, the internal message I got was I was expendable. If I didn't have the nicer job or the nicer car, she, whoever she was, was going to leave me. And see, these were the messages I carried. And it's very interesting because my relationship with my parents, I got along better with the alcoholic or the sexaholic, my mother, than I did with my father, who's the Anon. And it took me some time to kind of, it's not my job to diagnose my family with illnesses, but, you know, like others have shared, if they walk like a duck and then they quack like a duck, I'm going to treat them like a duck. So my father, I got, he was always, always there, very present but overbearing, perfectionistic, critical of me, can never do anything right, thanks for time. Um, and I just I just couldn't, I had so much resentment towards my father. My mother, who was very loving, I can be open with her, I can talk about almost anything with her, very supportive. She was, but she was detached, she was unavailable. She was there, but she wasn't. And so I had, I, I grew up with these uh, family messages that, I, that I'll just quickly share here. One of the messages was, if you agree with me, then you love me. If you don't agree with me, you don't love me. The disease makes everything black and white because it has to be simple, you know? And what I've learned in recovery, what I've learned through all of you, through sponsorship, through learning how to communicate, I learned that everything isn't black and white, you know? And in the middle, there isn't just gray. There's all these colors in between, you know? There's all these things that I can experience. And so... Most of my recovery has been unlearning what I've learned in my childhood. And through inventories, through making amends, through living amends, I've been able to use the traditions to really transform my relationship like Anne was sharing last night. You know, one of the biggest traditions that I, I like to turn to is Tradition 5, which I'll read here real quick. And as Sananda says, um, tradition five, each Essendon family group has but one purpose, to help families of sexaholics. We do this by practicing the 12 steps of Essendon, by encouraging and understanding our sexaholic relatives, and by welcoming and giving comfort to the families of sexaholics. Um, you know, my dad was a, was a single child. His mother and his father was arrested in prison for life. His mom went to another state, had another family. He was left with his grandmother and raised and so um his father would when he would get out of jail my dad would often tell me stories you know because one of the things that my dad would say is your childhood was 100 better than mine always carried that over me and i got so resentful over it because everyone's pain is significant to them it's legitimate and to minimize someone else's pain by saying my pain is worse than yours that's one of the messages i got and i just didn't feel like anything i had feelings otherwise were important but my dad, you know, it was it was good to look at that tradition and look back in my dad's childhood because I expected him to be supportive. I expected him to be uh, have unconditional love for me, to do all the things for me that I get here in recovery. And he couldn't do it, not because he can't, but because he doesn't have the tools, you know, and he was raised in an environment where his mom abandoned him. His father's in prison for life. When his dad get out of prison, his dad wrote him nasty letters about him being the son of the devil and all these crazy things. And there's a lot of active alcoholism in that side of the family. And I think to myself, why would I expect him to give me something he doesn't have? You know, and so this is where I start to really have compassion. Essanon has really given me the tools of compassion 
to look at others, to accept them where they're at, and to start accepting myself. You know, I'll, I want to share something here. One of the things when I worked step 10, I had this sort of theory in my head, like, okay, step 10, I have this perfect theory that if I, every interaction or conflict that I have with someone, either A, they're wrong and I need to forgive them, or B, I'm wrong and I need to make an amends. It's very simple, black and white. And my sponsor said, well, uh, that's that's a good start. But in order to forgive someone, you first had to have judged them. And I like this page on in ODAT and on page 120, which is uh, Al-Anon reader. And it talks about judgment. Um, I want to read it here real quick. I'm almost out of time. i got three minutes. A little meditation on the word forgive can throw some rather surprising light on our understanding of the word. We are asked to forgive those who have injured us. Unless we have first judged and condemned them for what they did, there would be no reason for us to forgive them. Rather, we would have to forgive ourselves for judging. The scripture says, judge not that ye be not judged. If we do judge, no matter how great the injury or how premeditated, we are at fault. Following this train of thought to its logical conclusion, we see that we can forgive only ourselves. In doing so, we also forgive the person whose action we have resented. Today's reminder, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, tells me I must first make peace with myself before I can learn to love others. I must remind myself constantly that I can never know another person's motives and conditioning. I must, for my own sake, accept them as they are. A large ingredient of that acceptance is loving tolerance. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and forgive me for judging and retaliating. Help me to forgive myself. I know this is the first step towards spiritual security. And I'm running out of time here, but I do want to share one experience. You know, in the AA Big Book, it does say that resentment is a number one offender. And as an Essanon, you know, I didn't know how that really looked. And I'm like, how is that? How is that going to kill me, a resentment? And I saw that how a resentment was going to kill me. And I remember back a couple of years ago when my son's mom and I had first split up, I started going crazy. A lot of the things that I saw in my child and my dad raging, showing up at my mom's house drunk, a lot of the fights that happened, I saw that I was starting to get there. I was starting to obsess about my son's mom, what she was doing, who she's with, who's my son around, started to just um, get into the stalking behavior, all that craziness. And I ended up um, blowing up on her. I called my sponsor and he says, all right, let's go to your fourth step. He says, what did, what did she do? She did like four things. She left me, took me to court. She did this, did this. Okay, let's go to your part. How long is your part? And it was about a page and a half long. And he says, whose part is longer? And I said, mom, he says, well, if you can't accept that you're powerless over what she did, then your unmanageability, your part will continue to get longer and longer and longer. Do you see where that's heading? And I saw the restraining orders. I saw losing custody of my son, and I also saw eventual homicide or suicide. I saw that this resentment could really kill me. I just told my sponsor, I don't want to lose my son. And he says, I want you to write down her name and surrender her. I want you to get a shoebox, call it your God box. I want you to write her name down every time you think of her, and I want you to surrender it to your higher power. And I started to do that. I started to feel the resentment get lifted. I started to see, and, to, and this, this last year, me and her took my son to Disneyland for his birthday. You know, this last weekend, I was able to sit down with her and her boyfriend. And we came up with a little family guideline for my son, who's now, you know, 
getting into technology and trying to find boundaries, we're able to communicate. We have a friendship today. And seeing how that Marcus, who is about to get to that point, to where I am at now, it's not because I, it's not because she's changed, it's because I've changed. It's because I have a relationship with a higher power. I no longer am giving my identity or my power away to other people. And I'm really grateful that I've changed as a result of this program. You know, my past, I can't change the past. I can't change the truth and I can't change you, but my perspective changes on all of that. That's what recovery has done for me. And I'm so grateful to have a family of choice today that I see a lot of them here in the audience. And uh, that's my story. So thanks for letting me share. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of the daily reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.